Hi everyone, thanks for joining us for our Lean Startup webcast. Today's topic is examples of Lean Startup in healthcare. I'm Felicia Chenko, Production Manager of Lean Startup Company. This webcast is part of a series featuring speakers from Lean Startup Week happening on October 31st to November 6th in San Francisco. Please visit leanstartup.co for more information. Eric Reese is an entrepreneur and author of the New York Times bestseller, The Lean Startup. He is host of Lean Startup Week and the CEO of the Long Term Stock Exchange. Gita Wilson is best known for developing highly successful CX and operational excellence programs for Fortune 500 companies such as Humana and NCR. Gita's latest CX innovation, dubbed Fast Start, brings together experts from across Humana to collaborate in a dynamic lab environment. Phil Dillard is lead of faculty and curriculum development for Lean Startup com Company. As an entrepreneur himself, he trains, coaches, and consults with companies ranging from small startups to Fortune 50 corporations. A few housekeeping notes. We will be taking questions from the audience via the live chat. If you'd like to ask a question, please flag it by starting with a Q colon before your question. This is an hour-long program, and the recording will be available after this live webcast. Take it away, Eric, Gita, and Phil. Good morning, everyone. Um, great to have you with us. It's a beautiful day in San Francisco. How you guys? Are you guys ready to go? <laughs> oh, yeah. Super. Um, so in preparation, I definitely wanted to start off with Gita and give an opportunity for her to tell a little bit about herself and, and her role at Humana. So Gita, can you share a little bit about yourself for the audience? Sure. Um, I lead the consumer experience, um, service experience here in Humana. Um, and I'm responsible for enterprise transformation across our um, lines of business. And um, sit in the CECOE, we've got about um, 170 people in our organization. And we work collaboratively across our, air, our organization. And we've, I've been here about three years. Super. Sounds like a, a great role. Um, one of the ways we like to get started is you know, to comment on the current status of the Lean Startup movement and how it's applied to this industry. Eric, can you start and, and comment on that and, and give it, uh, Felicia, Gita a chance to, to follow up after? Sure. I, you know, when, you know, at least people mostly think about Lean Startup, I think, still as kind of software-specific or, or kind of having a Silicon Valley flavor to it, and that's, that makes sense. That's kind of where, where it was incubated. But that mental model is pretty out of date. I mean, you know, the book, book now came out five years ago, and the ideas have really spread across a lot of industries and, and geographies, and there's been a lot of uptake in healthcare. You know, I can remember the first people kind of, I mean, people were first learning about Lean Startup, and they were like, well, how is this ever going to work in a regulated environment? How is it ever going to work in a physical environment? How is it ever going to work, you know, in a hospital or in a medical device? I mean, people were like, well, you'd have to, you have to figure out a bunch of stuff in order to make that work. You'd have to figure out the safety issues, you have to figure out the, the quality assurance issues, the regulatory issues, and it seemed very overwhelming at the time, but, but as you look at how time has passed, a lot of people have, have sorted those questions out. It's not rocket science, it's just, uh, it's a matter of disciplined thinking and saying, all right, what are the hypotheses we're trying to test and, and how do they apply in this domain? So I think now uh, there's like a well-established body of expertise for people who have applied these ideas uh, in healthcare. It's been really exciting, uh, very exciting to see. Uh, great. So, Gita, can you share some of the things that you've figured out for yourselves and Humana, part of this uh, part of this journey? Yeah, sure. So, I think Eric is right. So, um, when you look at where Lean Startup um, germinated in, in predominantly the tech industry, um, and then you look at where we are in healthcare, and you look at the complexity that there is, and then you begin to say, well, how can we take the agility and the nimbleness of a startup and apply it in healthcare and perhaps in a highly regulated industry like ours? And I think, personally, there was nowhere better to start or nowhere right, more right than um, using Lean Startup than American healthcare system um, because it's broken and there's an opportunity to reduce waste and um, to... Um, make innovation quicker and have a process by which we can um, follow there and go there without, without dis I think there's a concern it would be without discipline. And so um, I think starting the lean startup journey, if you will, at Humana, uh, we have to ask ourselves some candid questions, right? Are we being consumer centric? Are we innovating? Are we um, moving at a pace that our consumers demand a better experience? And the questions are, um, somewhat. They're not necessarily entirely no, but they're somewhat, right? And they're in pockets of the organization they happen. 
And so for us, it was an opportunity to say, okay, how can we move faster in Humana? And I think drilling down on some of the key pain areas where our consumers face um, and, and, and looking at where those are, kind of looking at the size and severity of an issue and saying, okay, let me focus on where I can make the biggest impact and help others in the organization um, know how to rally behind that, right? And know how perhaps if it's not in the area that we're touching, they could do it in their area. And we kind of, um, having been in corporate America for um, a, a large part of my career, we didn't want it to be just a program. And I think, Eric, you mentioned this many times around um, starting a movement or um, embedding it in the DNA. And I think that was where we started was, where's our pain points? Where can we hear from the consumer the most? How can we get close to them? And, and then um, let's try very quickly to accelerate using experimentation and testing that hypothesis. So starting small, think big, but start small. So um, Phil, that's kind of like a little bit of the journey, and I can speak more to it as we go on, but I thought you know, in setting it up, it was really kind of being honest with ourselves. Yeah, commitment to the truth is a prerequisite for any kind of experimentation. As you, well, you want to start with the, the empathy, right? You mentioned starting with the empathy, understanding, understanding uh, the, the customer, understanding what you know and what you don't know. Can you talk a little bit about the tradition, maybe in the transition from getting started to getting some, some real tra traction, and what sort of surprises maybe you encountered along the way? Um, that's me, Phil, right? Yes. yes. Okay, good. Um, so I think starting was with this hypothesis was if we start to look at the biggest um, experience and pain point and we work differently, about Lean Startup is working differently. So I think what we try to do is bring people from all across the organization, those who touch the work. So it wasn't just like your usual suspects. It wasn't just your and you know your um, user experience designers. It wasn't just your um, uh, product development uh, folks. We brought in people like the call service center reps, and we brought in people at different levels, right? Where side by side, you could be with a, a pharmacist, and you could be with a consumer experience rep. Uh, and then we brought in leadership as well to join us to um, side by side have that deep empathy. Because it's one thing to see it on data. And then it's another thing to actually immerse yourself and live it. And so we did side-by-side jack, side jacks with actual um, uh, consumer service reps with our leaders. And that was the first place we started with um, maximizing the experience, was going to a place where they could feel it. So deep empathy, I, I know we say it often, but it really means that you have to allow folks to experience it for themselves, and then you pop the question where it matters. And where, for us it was, look, we just got all these um, folks in within three days and we honed in on the key areas that are part of our grievance and appeals um, data is showing us are part of the areas that are the worst hit. And we did this in three days and we did this across our lines of business, across our functions, uh, and we broke through. How much do you think we can do if we spent more time working in this way? So testing this hypothesis around... Can we come together across our lines of business for the biggest pain points for our consumer? Yes. Right? We did that as, a, as an organization. Secondly, can we work faster? We showed, yes, we did that as an organization because we were able to come together in four days. Then the next question becomes, do you want us to quickly uh, still keep working faster and in a consumer-centric way? And at that point, you couldn't say no. And we were in the middle of a budget year. And, um, and, you know, asking for $6 million in the middle of a budget, yeah, where they were already cast, it would be heinous. But you did because the, the, you know, the experience was compelling enough to see that we need to change. And we also had um, a CEO who was willing to embrace ambiguity. And I think that's part of when you want to do learning, um, you've got your goal in mind and you also need um, leadership to help foster and embrace an ambiguity. So we were kind of at a great juxtapoint where our, our leadership was talking about embracing ambiguity, working faster, and here we were um, coming up with a solution with a, a large number of people across our lines of business, with our front line, and saying, we can work faster, unleash this creativity amongst us. And so that's where we started, and I can go in a little bit about what we did thereafter, but that was the beginning, was really testing out your hypothesis 
almost like eating your own dog food to some extent where you know you're kind of setting aside your own assumptions and saying I wonder if this works and so I think a good way of saying how we did Lean Startup in Humana is we actually did Lean Startup on Lean Startup at Humana. It was an experiment on itself. That's great. I've heard that before, and it sounds like a really dynamic way to apply it at a big organization. Eric, does that sound consistent with you with things you've seen at big regulated uh, organizations or healthcare organizations? It's really the only way, because I, I think people don't understand that transformation is a product. So we talk about uh, lean startup entrepreneurship as operating in situations of high uncertainty. So um, are we getting an echo? Hello. I'm not hearing. I'm not hearing an echo. I think I'm okay. okay. Um, sorry. Uh, so so people talk about you know entrepreneurship as the domain of extreme uncertainty and um, entrepreneurial any kind of entrepreneurial product is something where we don't know yet what's going to work and that's the whole logic for experimentation and of course since this is not pure academic science it's an applied science that's the logic for rapid experimentation in a disciplined way so that same logic applies to changing corporate culture or changing our management system every bit as much as it does to building a new widget or a new hospital or new anything um, if we have that kind of uncertainty then we have to be thoughtful about okay how do we know this is going to work and the, the mistake I see people make all the time is hey I read in this book great book that lean startup is the future and I'm convinced so it's a great way to go uh, which of course hey I'm an author I love when people read the book I love when people like it people then call me sometimes and say okay can I can you send me a hundred copies of the book I'm gonna change my hundred person organization to be all lean startup by making everybody read the book and I always say listen I, I'm, as an author I'll take your money to sell you the hundred copies of course but it's not gonna work you can't take a cookie-cutter approach and say, okay, everybody just do what it says in the book. The book is a set of principles that require adaptation, translation, customization to the unique circumstances of every company. That's not true. Of, that's not just true of Lean Startup. That would be true of any management system. But I think people forget how much that, uh, that translation is important. And the other thing is maybe not every company can do it. You know, I don't know. So far, we've had pretty good results, you know, and I, I've worked with a lot of companies in a lot of different ranges, but I think when you take these ideas into a company, some people are going to say, you're going to have skeptics in the audience who say, well, how do I know this applies to my company? If between us, the only really honest answer you can ever give someone like that is we don't know. We think it, well, we have a theory, we have a hypothesis that this could be a good idea, so let's prove it. And, and it actually allows you to bring the skeptics with you on the journey to say, look, you might be right, I might be right, but commitment to the truth means let's go find out for sure. So let's go run some experiments, let's go see what happens, let's agree what success looks like, let's measure those outcomes, and then if it's working, let's scale it up. So what I would add to the think big, start small is scale fast. Build your experiments in such a way that each, what, what you want, the best criticism you can get from a skeptic is someone to say, well, that looks great, but that's not a statistically significant sample. And you're like, yeah, good point. You're right. We both agree that our budget should be increased to increase the sample size. <laughs> Amen. So great. And and let's take it from X to 2X. So look, we did it with one team. Four, I mean, I, one of the biggest companies I ever worked with, we started with one team, literally hundreds of thousands of employees, and we did one product, one team, to transform it to Lean Startup. And then they liked that, and then we did four teams. And then we did four teams at a time for a while. And then we did eight teams at a time. And then we did 16 teams at a time. And it was only after we had done, I don't know, 100, 200 teams that the company made a decision to go bigger and to start to institutionalize it across the whole company. So by the time we made that commitment, what I call the phase two commitment, we, were, we had a, a library of stories, of case studies, of proof points that we could take to any person in the organization and say, this can work in your division, it can work in your function, it can work in your geography. And we weren't asking anybody to take our word for it, we had the proof. And I think that's a very important part of this kind of transformation. Great point. So I'm going to work in one of the questions from the audience here, and um, awesome. Two and two things. First is about specialization because I think one of the things people say is it doesn't work in my industry because of regulation or because of specialization in healthcare or medicine or something of that nature. So I'd like you both to speak to that, Eric first, and then Gita. But the question that comes from the audience is, which hospitals um, or systems are great examples? of Lean Startup. Like, can you see, I'd cite some specifics of where it's been working in healthcare and how we've, how we've tackled some of, those, some of those skeptics and some of those challenges. 
Yeah, I don't like to name names. I, you know, I feel like the temptation as a consultant to drop names of companies is so overwhelming and it, it just totally destroys your credibility. So first of all, I would say, look, we let companies come to the Lean Startup Conference and speak for themselves. We make the videos available for free, so go watch the videos and you can, you can see lots of examples in healthcare if you like. Um, I can tell some stories without naming names of just situations that I've seen. Uh, you know, where to start? I think you look at hospitals that have tried to figure out how do we how do we provide better patient care at lower cost I mean the nice thing about healthcare is it's an experience that we've all had you know everybody in the in the industrialized world has access to healthcare has had experiences of seeing doctors going to the hospital and knows just how horrible it is from a user experience point of view it's it you, know, you have to do it so it's a classic captive customer you have to do it but like dealing with your insurance company dealing with your hospital bureaucracy I mean Everyone I know has hundreds of stories of times that they, you know, are forced to wait a long time, wait to do things that were super wasteful and silly. I almost um, got ejected from a hospital once. Um, I was there with my uh, with my wife and my young baby, and we were had an extended stay in the hospital. And the nurse asked us what we wanted to eat, and we hadn't thought about it. So she said, "Well, let me know by a certain time so that we can fax in the order." And I was like, "I'm sorry, fax." Like, I mean, I couldn't even handle it. I almost had a total meltdown on the spot. I was a little sleep deprived, as you can imagine. It wasn't, and I was just like, "You can't." I was like, "I was like, what do you mean, facts?" She's like, "Well, we have to tell the central organization that does the catering, which is a separate company. We have to tell them what you want, so we have to get the order." And I was like, "From an actual fax machine?" She's like, "Yeah, it has to be by a certain deadline," and it was like, and she's, and I was just like losing my mind. And and the nurse finally was like, "Well, how?" How else would you do it? And I was like, Do you have two hours? I can sit here and give you forty. I was just like, I was like ready to start spouting. You could make a mobile app to do this. You could create a song. And like, and of course, I'm like berating this poor nurse who is not empowered by this system to do anything about it. So it's just causing total frustration. And uh, I have some people in my family who are doctors, and they were with me at the time, and they're kind of giving me the like, stop, you need to stop this conversation. You're, this is gonna be, this is gonna lead to a very bad outcome for you. And there's no, this can't be changed. And of course. So, so we've all had those experiences. We all know that those problems are are endemic to the system, and and they put the people in the system in a horrible position, because I mean this is a solvable problem. Mm -hmm. It's not hard. Technically, it'd be very straightforward. I've worked with tons of of hospitals, uh, you know, medical device companies who have been in these kinds of situations who've said, okay, you know what, let's run the experiment. It'd be very inexpensive to test out a software app to do this instead of doing it by fax. And you know, yes, there's some work, there's some logistics to figure out, and you got to coordinate. And as different functions and departments, and this nurse is probably not a coder, but like they have to pair them with someone on the IT side. So like, yeah, there's some complexity to it. But like, this problem could be completely solved in 90 days, no problem, for sure. But the system doesn't permit it, so it's never, you know. So the, so this problem in this particular case, they solve this problem by building a new hospital. That's a very expensive way to solve the problem. Sure, it, you know, it also highlights what you said in there. Also highlights um, that there are multiple areas where you can apply the process and have significant impact in the experience of everyone involved. Um, yeah. Gita, I, I'm sure you were about to um, to comment on something as well. How would you? Where would you go with that? I mean, there's there are probably so many areas that you've you started to touch. Can you share some examples of? Different areas uh, that of the organization that you've touched, or different uh, parts of the experience that you've touched with things you've explored. Yeah, I actually want to build off what just Eric was talking about with um, simple things like being put in the middle, right, of sending a fax over, and you're, you know, you you question why a fax, and the answer simply could be, well, we could change and we could do something different, right? Now, I think those are places where. Even traditionally, organizations like ours, because we're not short of plans, we're not short of projects, right? That could say, you know, what we need to do here is take out the facts and leave it at that. Or we could say, the solution here is to build a software. And, and, and then we traditionally go, go about um, not having framed the problem, but going to a solution and say, let's do that, right? Yep, totally. Now, I'll give you let's gather the requirements. Yeah, and I'll give you an example. We actually had, so we tested this sort of um, solutioning, and by the way, when we brought all these people, we actually didn't, we actually um, uh, agreed with our leaders to say that we're not starting with any projects yet. We're going to do deep customer empathy, we're going right. to go broad to go narrow, then, you know, we're going to do rapid experimentation, and then we're going to build and scale, right? 
So, so one of the one of the ideas that the folks one of the um, folks had was like, why don't we do a geolocation um, when somebody enters in to a hospital that's out of network, their phone will start alarming and it will start saying you're in a hospital out of network because that's one of the biggest pain points that we have. Like, ah, right. you get this big claim and you're not in network, right? Right. And so the person didn't know. Yeah. Now, traditionally, we might say, that's a great idea. Let's put a um, set of people together and let's uh, work out how we're going to make this happen by July, right? And instead, what you did, um, using this rapid experimentation hypothesis building, is that, okay, let's go out into the street, uh, go with real customers, and, and now start to translate that idea into behaviors, right? Do prototypes. Yeah. And, and I tell you what happened. People built prototypes like of a phone uh -huh. that went into a hospital. And, and what happened is folks got freaked out, right? Because they were like, this feels very big brotherish. This big feels like you're yeah. following us. And so the insights that we're getting, good idea, but the insight we were getting is that there wasn't this trust developed with the actual mm -hmm. members yet where they trusted us with their health in a sense to follow them around, right? And then highlight the, the intent was good. And so I think you have to find and leverage places um, where you hear what the consumer is telling you and then you frame your solution in the mm -hmm. problem that's right. And the problem here was not necessarily that we wanted to build a geolocation app, right? The problem here was that they were confused and not clear about where to go to get um, coverage. And so one of the opportunities that we have in healthcare is to get the basics right for people is we have an opportunity, going back to that facts um, option, we did a very simple experiment um, with our care service reps. We said, how about you just take the member out in the middle when they phone you and, and set, up, set up these uh, hypotheses, right? Take a member out in the middle um, and, and resolve that issue as far as you can take it. Now, that didn't require technology, right? But there were some things that we learned when we went out to the floors uh, with the call center reps. We learned that you know calls got dropped, but they didn't have the ability to say make a call back because the queue, the call queue, um, did another queue, uh, call in. And so you apply the principles of Lean and Jemba, right? And you actually observe, and you find that there's more to the picture than meets the eye. Totally. And you have to, um, you have to take a step back from what you think is a solution and say, you know what? Um, as we're as we're learning and we're testing, we're getting insights, and then we're building our solution from those insights. And so we did, in effect, roll out. We just finished rolling out with 2,000 of our um, care service reps across our pharmacy organisation, because um, for us in healthcare, um, when our uh, members call, usually they use their pharmacy as their first use benefit. Uh -huh. So when you get irritated, is when you find out, well, is my is my drug covered, and and then you have to find maybe send in, um, get it with your doctor and um, have him fax over the, um, the actual script again. Right. And so that, that call center rep is empowered to then do a call on behalf of your doctor for you and, and get that going. And so that's a yeah. simple example of where we can focus a lot on trying to get the basics right for consumers, suspend judgment on what solution is um, we need to do and actually let, let the consumer and let the hypothesis and the currency you get from the experiments determine what solution you put in. I love that story. Man, I would, I mean, I just wish every company I interacted with on the phone had that attitude, you know, because that, that's the thing. You, when you think about things from a consumer's point of view, you're like, wait a minute. I know, I know what good experience feels like. I know when I'm being treated properly. Uh, I know what it means to have a less wasteful. And yet, a lot of us, we get so indoctrinated into like the product development process in our company that we lose that perspective entirely. We become quite, quite sociopathic, really, from the customer's point of view. We're just like, hey, I got to do things in my stages. I got to fill the requirements. I got to execute. And we, we forget that these products affect human beings and we are responsible for those impacts. Requirements is my least favorite word in the entire product development vocabulary. When I work with teams now, I always tell them right up front, um, the laws of physics are required. Everything else is optional. Okay, so there's nothing required. Just because some some manager told you something was a requirement, or a customer even told you that something was a requirement, they don't they don't know. We use hypotheses, not requirements. And when you do okay. that, you you have these opportunities for these radical insights, like you're talking about. I've worked with tons of teams where we had to change the name of the team 
because management has a tendency to assign the solution to the name of the team. So the team is called like geolocation, you know, entry team. And then you go do this experiment, and you're like, actually, geolocation has nothing to do with it. It's really about, you know, customer understanding what's in network and what's out of network. And so that's like, oh, okay. <laughs> well, we, and I've, been, I've literally been in meetings where people are like, well, we, we can't make that pivot because we're the geolocation team. It says right here on the clipboard or whatever. <laughs> it's just like, okay, are we intelligent human beings trying to solve a problem or are we robots doing what we're told by management? Like, okay, and I've been in some rooms when it wasn't 100% clear what the answer to that question was. So we have to really talk about it. Uh, and, and listen, I, we make light of it now, but, but people who work in a hierarchy, work in an established organization, they have real concerns and fears about doing things differently, about standing up to management, about, about you know, having the courage to represent the truth. I think one of the most difficult things for any employee to do is to tell their boss, you believe something that's wrong. And it's not that you're a bad person, it's just you don't have the facts, let me present the facts to you. And that sounds like such a simple act, but it's actually quite radical. It's saying we as a company, we prefer the empirical truth of the outside world to the manufactured political truth of our internal culture. And I don't think every company can say that, honestly. I mean, it's, it's actually quite common for people to engage in groupthink and to get sucked into the corporate culture and to forget the facts. And so to say, I as an employee, I'm going to stand up for the customer and their actual lived experience, and I'm going to do the work, the rigorous work, to get that data and to present it, that's very powerful. And it, it seems like a very simple shift, but that seems like the big thing that makes the change Right, that allows a, a big organization to move at speed, to learn and innovate and, and adapt. Would you agree with that? Certainly. Um, yeah, I agree. Um, I, you know, I feel I feel like um, Humana has been on this progressive journey, really, um, because there's this sort of authentic, genuine interest in trying to take the member out in the middle. And, and we know we're clunky, and we know that there's parts of our areas where we just need to do better, and we want to, and we want to do better. And when we have, like, I, I'm going to talk about values for a minute, because we've got Rethink Routine, Thrive Together, Inspire Health, Cultivate Uniqueness, and Pioneer Simplicity as our values. Now, I just reeled those off, no problem to you. I've worked in tons of organizations where I haven't been able to name our values. And so they reinforce... Like there's sort of um, places that reinforce it. So you're not really the loner who's standing alone and saying, you know, I want to do what's right for the consumer and nobody else does. You actually, you actually have structures and what, you're, what you need to do is find out how you could not just have deep empathy with the customer, but have deep customer, deep empathy for your management. And now I'm going to think, get, ask you to think about that for a minute. What, you know, I had to not just say, I'm going to do what's right for the member. We have to, as a team, think, what does the business need from us, right? And, and then part of the problems are, is that, that the thinking is that they're mutually exclusive. Reducing transfers on a call center is good for the member, right? Um, it's a pebble in their stone when they call us, and it's like salt on a wound because it's like, mm -hmm. I already have this problem, and now I have to be transferred. And, and it's a problem for us, too, when we do. We don't want um, transfers happening, right? Because now we have this um, inefficiency in our area. So I think when you find places where you can manage to empathy, which is what's on the business's mind, too, right, as well as what's on the consumer minds, and you'll find that they're not mutually exclusive. Like, optimizing the cost structure can also mean leaving out inefficiencies in the consumer experience, right? Um, it's just a question of how do you get there first? Do you get there first by going straight to what you think the solution might be or really framing it around the customer? And I think like um, we improve self-service transactions. Our customers were like they can't get answers quickly online. And we saw that. We saw that it was hard to get fast and clear and accurate answers. And so they were going straight to a call. And so when you start to do that, and you start to think, how can I make these uh, questions and answers appear online better? You, t you start to take cost out from a live agent to a, um, a really an inexpensive channel, a less expensive channel, and start to cater to those consumers who want us to get the basics right. So there's some things that I think we have to do, um, even as lean, lean innovation folks, is um, if you start with the consumer and you build empathy there, 
and you also build empathy in your in your own organization and understanding the the points um, of inflection that you can create you will see that they're not mutually exclusive and I think that's perhaps where um, challenges lie because we might be an all-or-nothing group right we might think like it's too much traditional control too much management planning and it never really pans out the way it should and I think people are willing to go on that journey I was pleasantly surprised by how many leaders in our organization were willing to go on that journey suspend disbelief and give us a sandbox and actually were curious to know what the results would be um, but you have that lay, you have to lay that context around lining up to the goals that they have as well yeah super super so um, there are a couple questions in here and I want to start with Eric on the on some of the some of the trends you've seen and then maybe get to talk about the specifics um, uh, several questions talk about um, the challenges that are required that are outside of, kind of outside of the immediate control like in Eric's example of changing from a fax to an app that's that's people I think people perceive that as being something that's a little easier or a call center they think that's a little easier but if you get into the things where people feel like they have that big brother effect or we're dealing with PII or we're dealing with regulations and they say well this stuff is a little bit outside of our normal area of control how do we manage that can you yeah. speak a little bit about the extension out of stuff that seems like easy stuff to the things that's a little more complicated yeah well keep in mind that everyone else's business is easy you know, so everyone else's regulator is the worst. Uh, you know, my regulator is the worst. Other regulators are simple. So, like people who are, are FDA regulated are like, oh, sure. If only I was regulated by the FAA, that that would be my life would be so much better. You know, people who are regulated by the FCC, you know, I, you know, believe me, I've heard every variation of the grass is greener, but I can't do it in my industry. You can possibly imagine. Since we're talking about healthcare, um, first of all, uh, so let me piece, put put a couple pieces together. The first is. Thinking like an entrepreneur, I think when people hear that phrase the first time, they're like, ooh, that's easy. Entrepreneurship is easy, so this is going to be an easier way of working. And it's like, does anyone feel like Elon Musk's job is easier than theirs? Right? And like, does anyone feel like you know, Mark Zuckerberg doesn't deal with constraints? He never had to deal with adversity or hardship. It's like, I don't know what people are smoking when they think somehow entrepreneurial, managed entrepreneurial stuff, like that's somehow easier than traditional men. No, it's way harder. It's just more rewarding, so it's worth it. So first thing is just like, suck it up. Accept that everyone has constraints and obstacles and things out of their control and make it work anyway. Now, how do we do that? And, and, and we're talking about a scientific approach to entrepreneurship. So you can imagine a scientist who's like, oh, some aspects of science are outside of my control, so I guess I can't do it. Like, what? Right? Astronomers like do, do science about things that are like thousands of light years away, and they manage to find a way. Now, it's hard work. You have to be creative to think about it. So first thing is just accept that there are things that are under, out of your control. Now, the regulatory excuse is the most common, like, bad excuse that I hear about why people can't do experiments. And I'll, I'll give you an example, one of my favorites. It, in order to solve that, you have to be willing to build a truly cross-functional team. I think this is something that product organizations are, are notoriously bad about. So I was working with a, um, what can I say about this project? This is a medical device uh, product that's sold to hospitals. And... It's very high science, high tech, um, high risk. Like it's a serious um, piece of equipment, um, and the the possibilities for patient care are extremely high uh, if it works. Now, this team was made up of scientists and engineers, researchers in a laboratory, and they were starting to branch out to thinking about how to how to commercialize uh, this product. And the first thing I told them was, is there, and they were like, oh, but we can't do it because there's all these regulatory complexities and how are we going to figure it out? And I was like, well, the first thing we got to do is get someone from, you know, from the regulatory side of our business on this team. And they're like, what do you mean? I was like, you got to go get somebody from, from the legal regulatory compliance division assigned to your project full time. And they looked at me like I had two heads. They're like, I, you can't, those guys hate us. Oh, do tell. And there's this one guy in that organization who is like the ultimate troll. All he ever says is no. Whenever we come to him with a request, he never wants he don't give us timely. So they, they don't like us over there. They think we're bad, and they're always trying to shut us down. And it's just like, no, 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 we don't want to have it. I was like, listen, if you want my help, you have to build a cross-functional team. We have to figure out what the law actually says. We have to figure out what kind of experiments we can run. They're like, okay, fine. So, like, so please put in a request to have somebody from that organization assigned to this project full-time. And they were like, do we have to? I mean, they tried every excuse. And I was like, nope, it's a absolutely required. You have to do it. Trust me. 
They send in the request, and they get they and they, the request is denied. Sorry, we don't have the budget to put someone on your team. And I was like, uh, budget? They're like, oh yeah, well we asked them to send somebody over. I was like, well did you offer to pay for that person's salary? And now they looked at me like I had five heads. They're like, what are you talking about? You want to pay for a lawyer out of our product budget? Yeah, cross-functional team means cross-functional funding. So you you pay. So they go back, they make the request, they offer to pay for it. We sort through all the bureaucratic crap, and they get someone assigned. Now guess who got assigned? It's no everyone who can can guess who's going to be. It's that one guy who they hate the most, who's always say like the most nastiest, crankiest person in the whole organization gets assigned to their team. I said, listen, don't worry about it. Come to one of my workshops. So we bring the whole team out, including the, this new cross-functional team. Bring them all out to San Francisco for a Lean Startup workshop to talk about how we could do this. And this guy who's assigned to this project, I'll never forget the look on his face. He was so annoyed that he got assigned to this thing. He was so frustrated to be sitting in this stupid workshop in San Francisco. He was just like arms crossed, not having a good time. Okay. We start going through Lean Startup, MVPs, the basics, and, and we're helping them understand things. And I, we're talking a lot about the importance of cross-functional teams. And there's a moment in the workshop where he says, excuse me, are you telling me that I'm going to be on this team? That means I'm going to have a chance to weigh in on these cockamamie experiments before they get out of hand and like from the very beginning? And we're like, yeah. And he's like, okay, interesting. <laughs> Continue. All right. What's an MVP? What? So we're going through it, going through it, going through it now. We have the teams break out to start to talk about their specific plans, leap of faith assumptions, all of the standard lean startup stuff. And I'm going around coaching the teams, and I sit with this team for a while, and they're discussing how can we do a minimum viable product for this very complicated medical device. I mean, their original plan was to spend three or four years developing this thing. I don't know. It was going to cost 30 or $40 million. It was like going to be a major ordeal to commercialize this thing. And then they were going to try to get it in every hospital in America. That was their initial target. So we're like, okay, what would it look like to do a minimum viable product? Could we do it in one hospital? Could we do it in three hospitals? Could we, you know, what can, how can we affect? And the team's figuring that stuff out, and they're like, hey, we can modify the supply chain. And hey, we only have there's this like super high tech, complicated product like component that we only have three of in the world. So we can't actually, yeah, like part of the three years is figuring out how to mass produce this thing. It's like, okay, well, how about before we mass produce it, we have three. Let's make three, you know, so we got, but we're doing really well until finally one of the people on the team says, oh, shoot, this was great, but it's not going to work. Oh, why not? And like, everyone knows uh, you cannot pre-sell a medical device to a hospital if it's not FDA approved. And the whole team's like, oh, right, shoot, forget it, never mind, back to our crappy mass production plan. And the troll who hasn't said much this whole time, he's like, oh, excuse me, does that strike you as likely to be the FDA rule in question? People are like, I'm sorry, what? He's like, does it? Does that sound like the federal government to put out a law that has one sentence in it that just says you can't sell medical device to a hospital? And they're like, well, now that you mention it, no. He's like, yeah. Doesn't it seem more likely that the federal government would provide like a thousand pages of guidance and credible detail? And they're like, well, yeah, that does sound more like them. He's like, have any of you read the relevant statute that governs this? And everyone looks at him like, well, no, of course not. He's like, yeah, I actually have read it. It's my job. And if you respected me, you would know that. People are like, okay, interesting. And did you know that in section 507, subsection 3, part C, you know, footnote 4, subpart sub 6, there's an exemption to that rule that covers the case that you're talking about right now? And they're like, no, we, we didn't know that. He's like, well, that's my job to know that kind of thing. So actually, did you know the experiment you just described is legal? After all, and the team's like, "Hey, this is amazing! Like, he's so helpful! Like, so happy, so excited! He's, you know, now their favorite guy." And I remember one of the other people on the team was like, "Um, are there, are there other exemptions? <laughs> like, is there, is there anything?" He's like, "Now step into my office, my friends!" But of course, there's actually eight different ways that we could do this. And now, now all of a sudden, this constraint that they had been operating under, this belief that they couldn't do, was like immediately released by somebody who was actually working with them to figure out how do we turn that constraint into an advantage. And then his team actually wound up doing this MVP that was 10 times or 100 times cheaper and faster than what they were thinking about doing before. I have seen that story play out over and over and over again. When we build a true cross-functional team, we bring the actual expertise required to figure these things out, and we work together across these functional boundaries, we often discover solutions 
that we never would have dreamed were possible and realize that many of these constraints are actually opportunities to do something new. That's super. I, you know, Eric, I, I love that story. It's so good on so many so many levels, but the, the, the turning constraints into, into opportunity and exposing mm -hmm. the value of the cross-functional team is tremendous. Now, Gita, I know that's a tough story to follow. <laughs> um, and Eric might have told it once, once or twice before, but can you share some specific uh, examples or, or anecdotes that you have from your, from your experience that might be helpful? Yeah, I actually, I'm going to build on two. So the first one I'm going to build on, because you mentioned um, it, it's, so, it's so part of the DNA, like we're an insurance company, we're risk averse by nature, right? And so risk is definitely a, um, a big question, but you, you want to be able to um, know how you tap into and leverage the people who perhaps want to do the best for the consumer too. Right, so it's interesting that Eric mentions it because we actually had, um, as part of our cross-functional team, legal and compliance on the teams itself. And so we had um, uh, legal counsel on our teams, and then we also had, like when we were ready to get going, we had, uh, um, by their own volition as well, mind you, this was not something that we asked, but it's something that they felt was needed to do, they sent a, a note to all of the entire legal counsel team and said, if you get any requests from this group of folks, I want you to give it attention and give it, and don't say no first. Um, figure out how we might say yes first, right? And and that that tone from our you know our legal chief legal counsel set the tone for their legal counsel then to give them the opportunity to unleash some creativity, right? And so sometimes when you're sitting on the outside, you're thinking no, it can't happen, but if you bring people along in the journey and give them a common mission, right, and say, look, we win this together and we're not blaming anyone in the organization, but we have three guardrails. We're going to keep it legal, we're going to protect our revenue, and we're going to protect our brand. Those are three guardrails that we, ha you know, we had. And, and it was amazing to see um, in our first boot camp that we did, um, and I can, I can picture it like it was yesterday, um, we were testing this experiment around, is it, are we able to give some type of um, quick service recovery for when such situations go bad? So like Zappos, you know that their, their uh, care agents are provided autonomy, right, around perhaps you can, you know, you've got this amount of money and then you can like discretionarily offer it to the consumer. Good idea. But is it legal for us to do, right? And so, and we're testing even do consumers want that? And we found through partnering within um, and having that legal person on our team, they were able to find a commensurate solution that gave the right outcome, right, which is making the consumer feel better, but not necessarily landing on the same solution as, as Eric mentioned, what works for another company. Um, so I remember like it was yesterday that this, um, yeah, uh, she was like she was on Wall Street, she was tasked with this um, experiment that she had to figure out what we could do in that experiment to offer. And so she had like phones ringing in both ears and like she was making calls on our behalf and advocating on our behalf. And it was just a pleasurable to see, right? And those types of uh, vignettes and pictures are a real opportunity to share in the organization uh, and communicate. The second one I wanted to share with you is around, um, you know, our population, uh, part of a large population is Medicare um, population. And we had a hypothesis that not all of our Medicare population um, want to call in with a question or query and and yet there was this assumption in the organization that you know Medicare people don't want to use their smartphones um, to or, or self-serve and so we sort of try to test that and we were wanting to think about how can we make it easier at the point of when they're calling in to intercept and so we instead of buying this solution on, we try to test for the solution and see if Medicare members would um, opt into a touchscreen menu on the phone when they get into the IVR. And, um, you know, think of, talk about doing a, uh, a rapid experimentation and prototype. We actually made that live on our IVR menu where we seemingly offered that experience to a touchscreen menu. Medicare, and then what do you know? 30% of those members actually opted in for the touchscreen menu. So our currency and a leap of faith assumption on and going to that solution was strong. But guess what? We learned another insight. We mm -hmm. learned that it was actually 
folks liked the experience better because they found that the touchscreen menu allowed them to pace through slower and see what they were doing because those with hearing disabilities were having a hard time getting mm. like through the IVR menus. So I think when you open yourself up to like no constraints, being like completely, um, and it, it takes a lot of work to do this to yourself, completely open to what the results might share and saying it's a learning, you know, and letting go of those ideas that you might think would work because we were at a pivotal point. Do we persevere or pivot? And at that point, we were strongly sort of on the direction of persevering because we found not only did Medicare members use their smartphone, but they also wanted to um, use it for self-service functionality. So this is like, and these are ingrained assumptions that we would have had and we would have tasked projects for or discounted something not to do altogether. So these are two examples that ring in my mind. Uh, and, 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 you know, I had like the experiment teams who were like so believed it. They believed that this was the right thing to do. I said, well, if you believe it's the right thing to do, then you're going to design an experiment with a strong currency that's going to share with us whether that leap of faith assumption is true or not. And I think that's your accountability too. You have got to um, move from a place where if traditional management was about control, then you've got to move to a place where the ideas that you project have got to have confidence, right? So yeah. change the paradigm from um, control to confidence and provide that in everything that you do. Wow, that, that, those are super examples. Thanks for sharing. Control the confidence, the importance of leadership and engagement of leadership and helping people to think creatively. Um, really cool stuff. I want to weave in, we have, we have a little more than 10 minutes left. I want to weave in one question that comes from the, from the audience that's related to these examples and then give you guys a couple minutes to talk about what's, what's next. Mm -hmm. So the question to weave in from the audience is um, the, the part of, all right, we're going to do these experiments. We're going to get out of the building and interact with people, but how do you manage these specific instances when you have a fixed date for a deliverable to be a complete? These people are thinking about uh, constraints, right? So how did you manage these experiences to the, some of these time constraints? Do you want to start, Eric, and then we'll then I'll sure, go back to you. Yeah. I love that because um, there's two ways to answer. One is to say constraints are good. So like most projects need a, a, a like I often have to impose a fake deadline in order to create scarcity thinking. So like a very common, I'm thinking of a project in particular that was done at the Department of Health and Human Services that was you know lifetime government bureaucrats. Like pe people in, in in private sector are always like, oh my company's so bureaucratic. I was like, no no no, this is not bureaucratic. This is the actual definition of a of a professional bureaucracy. So we're talking about the real thing, okay? You have a, an organization that's political, that's bureaucratic. You know, like yes, this is all of the above. You know, if your company is more bureaucratic than a Department of Health and Human Services, then uh, you know, I'd be surprised. Uh, certainly, it's not more political than Obamacare. So come on, you know, what's your excuse? So. Uh, that's not an environment where people are used to thinking about scarcity or deadlines or anything like that. So uh, the leader who was setting up the experiment at the time gave the team a hard deadline of 90 days. He's like, listen, I will authorize you to run this experiment for 90 days. And they were like, okay, so at the end of 90 days, we will come back to you with a plan to create a set of deliverables to think about doing the thing. He's like, I think you misunderstood me. This project is going to be over in 90 days unless the problem is solved. And they're like, wait, you want us to do something in 90 days? He's like, not only that, I want you to do multiple things in 90 days. I expect you to have iterated on this several times and come back to me with data that, sh and they were like, first they were just like, that's impossible. I couldn't, and he's like, listen, it is possible. I know that it's possible. Go do it. And he got a team, a cross-functional small team, and they built this thing in 90 days. It was incredible. It was like exponentially faster than anything the government had ever done. And then they kept iterating in 90-day chunks. So the deadline was a, you know, was a real positive. On the other hand, what does it mean? Like the person who asked this question, I love the passive voice. What do I do if there is a fixed date for the deliverable? It's like, who fixed it out of curiosity? What is it fixed by? I see this a lot in companies where we just take it as immutable, things that were decided by human beings. Every once in a while in business, there is a true deadline. Like we're building an arena for the Olympic Games and the Olympics are scheduled to happen on a certain date and the arena has to be done. And if it's not done, it has no value. So like there are, you know, the, the, the space shuttle is taking off on a certain day and the fuel has to be in the tanks by that day. Or, you know, like there are, there are times when there are true deadlines. But 99% of business situations are not like that. 
deadlines are artificial imposed by some internal process. We said we were going to get it done, by, you know, or whatever. Like we make up a, a scarcity or a constraint, but it's not a real constraint. It's a requirement. And as I said before, no, it's not a real requirement. And this to me is an instance of the idea that in companies we tend to use the word risk interchangeably to describe two totally different things. There are internal risks, like uh, we might miss a deadline, and then there are external risks, like the product might explode and kill people. Okay, so external risks, risks that regulators might be upset about, you know, like uh, a customer might be harmed, uh, so, you know, we might lose money, like actual physical consequences of our actions outside the building. Those are real risks that need to be managed, and my claim would be that Lean Startup is a good way to mitigate those risks by being thoughtful about experimentation. Internal risks are things like we might not hit a deadline. We might not we might not follow the waterfall stages in the right order. Uh, my my boss might be mad at me. My, the company like not that the company would lose money, but that my department would have its accounting look bad compared to another department. So you know like I can't tell you how many times that the revenue that the product is going to make is net accretive to the company as a whole, but it's not necessarily a good change for my function, my department, my little area. So those are all internal risks. If we treat internal risks and constraints and obstacles as just as real as external risks and constraints and obstacles, then we're not going to get anywhere. And you can't be an entrepreneur thinking that way. You got to say, look, yes, there might be a political problem, like someone wants this done on a certain date and it can't be done on that date. But then let's go talk to that person and renegotiate the terms of the contract. And I'll teach people who are listening. This is one of my favorite uh, tools to use. I call it the golden sword for cutting through any kind of political bureaucratic deadlock. You go to the person in question, you say, listen, I would like to make a trade. So here's, I'm offering you a deal. I'm going to put it on one piece of, I'm literally going to write it down on a piece of paper, I'm going to hand it to you, and it's your choice. You may accept or reject the deal, but you don't have a line item veto. Okay, I'm offering you this deal. The deal is, I will offer you this. So like, for example, uh, I'm committed to deliver you this result one year from today. That's a very common thing. Boss says, one year from today, I want every employee in the company on this new system. Or I want this product in the hands of 100,000 people. Like, I have some outcome. Boss, I can't promise you that. There's too much uncertainty. I don't know how long this project is going to take. I can't deliver it to you in one year. But here's what I offer you. Every month, I will show you data that our latest experiment is making progress towards that goal. Every month I will give you the option to continue for another month or cancel my project and reclaim my budget at any time. Uh, I will not ask you for more money unless I have evidence that what I'm talking about is working. And I will do all of that with a lower budget than I asked you for before. So I'm actually reducing costs. I'm giving you more insight, giving you multiple decision points to, to pivot or persevere. And I'm willing to be accountable for this outcome. In exchange, what I need from you, although I'm asking you for less money, I need dedicated resources. So you had given me a 20-person team of part-timers before. I need a five-person team 100% dedicated. I need the following kinds of air cover and agreements with our management. You've got to shield me from this thing or you got to you know, deal with this. There's like five political things that need to be done. And you know, I need from you this defined set of resources. I need this amount of money. I need this equipment. I need, you know, like here's what I need from you. And then I need you to meet with me for every board meeting once a month until the problem is solved. I have never met a senior manager, and I've worked in some pretty crappy bureaucratic organizations. I have I have dealt with some really un, intransigent middle managers who just hated my guts and thought Lean Startup was the stupidest thing they ever saw in their life. And I mean, I have faced the firing squad in corporate situations many times as an instigator of change. I have never met a middle manager who was so intransigent that they would say no to the deal I just offered. Because from their point of view, forget the company's point of view, it's obviously good from the company's point of view. From their narrow point of view as a guy trying to do a job and get promoted, it's a huge win for them. It's more insight, transparency, and accountability all at once, and it's a higher probability of the outcome actually manifesting. Maybe not on schedule, but eventually. And it's a very powerful technique. It really can help middle managers get out of that kind of intransigent stuck place to say, oh, here's how I can be your ally instead of your enemy. I mean, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's called the golden sword for a reason. Super. That's a, that's a very helpful tool. 
so we're at about five minutes. I want to give uh, Gita the, the floor to, to add anything that you had on that last topic and then a couple seconds on a couple minutes on uh, what's next for you and then we'll let Eric wrap it up. Yep. So very quickly, listen, if you've got a goal, someone's giving you a deadline in, in healthcare, I like it. Uh, we need a sense of urgency, so let's be real here, right? Um, I've seen projects go on too long, far too long that shouldn't have gone on. And so uh, for us, it's, I think it's good. I welcome deadlines. And I think Eric hit a nail on the head. Be willing to talk, talk very plainly and, and make deals, right? Like that's how we started was, you know, yes, give us 100 people for 18 months and we'll provide some results to you. Don't ask us necessarily to outline every step to you, but we will provide the results to you, right? And you, and you provide confidence along the way, and you create, create discipline to provide uh, insight into results that you're getting. Important, right? Um, so one is you don't need to experiment at nauseam, right? And meaning that there's a time when you have to hold yourself accountable to, to saying getting something done, and, find, and it forces you to find the find the best experiment as well. So there's a time when I think our team could continue going on doing experiments and the answer was like in our face, do it now. You've got enough currency, go ahead and do it. And so timing is, and deadlines are good. I will also say you need, to, you need grit in the work that we do here. Uh, I will say that in the last 14 years in corporate America, this is the hardest I've ever worked where, where my um, you know, my mental faculties, my smarts, my emotions, my political awareness, um, the ability to keep up and pace with what's going on outside are all challenged. And then you set higher expectations for yourself, there'll be higher expectations of you too. And then there'll be roller coasters, there'll be dips, there'll be highs when your team is riding high and there'll be lows when, you know, you feel like the obvious decision that you're making is so clear and then you might run into a wall. And how do you persevere positively through that? And, and one of the things that I think any um, agent of change has to do is make sure they have the right quotient of emotionally balanced quotient, emotional intelligence folks in your team. And, and sort of I would say that the me versus we quotient is less and the we quotient is higher. And then have some fun. Like, make time for fun in your organization. Make time to celebrate wins. We have a daily routine that we do every morning for the job, and we celebrate. Maybe small things, we give out ninja awards. We celebrate because um, we know that if we overcome something today, we overcame it together, and we still may overcome it, have some more things to overcome tomorrow. But we um, celebrate the win for today. And I think building resilience into the team is important. And don't forget, don't take yourself too seriously. Let go when it's time to let go of stuff. And, and remember that you're doing an experiment on any experiment you're running itself. So I'll leave it at that to when you're working in lean, um, trying to do lean startup in America, you should be willing to be um, willing to experiment on lean startup yourself. That's great. That's great. Awesome. So many nice little things to take away. Definitely, I love the jolt too because it's so easy to forget to take, to take advantage of that. So... Um, we're, we're, we're close to the end. Um, Geet, I'll let you go first. You know, a minute or two, tell us what's next and uh, what's next for you. Uh, I think it's MVP2 on our Lean Startup effort here. Uh, I'm just, uh, I'm, I'm pretty jazzed about what the opportunities might be. Um, you know, we have shown that we've got $30 million of savings in the next three years. In our first year, we've accumulated $7 million. And I think um, our organization is ready to say, you know, we've done it in this way. What would be MVP2? And so, again, I keep saying, like, do lean startup on lean startup in your own organization. And be willing, ready to share. Like, I, you know, it's not going to happen in a lab within one four walls. And don't ever think that it's just happening within your own four walls. There are lots of people who are contributing to the cause and continue to make it grow. So I would feel like... Um, What's next is making sure that the movement lives on beyond a program or any, any type of closed four walls that we have within Humana. So, um, again, wait to hear, hear more from us on what MVP2 might be. That sounds exciting. Can't wait to hear more about it. Eric, do you want to talk about what's, what's next for you? There's, there, there's so much that people are talking about. <laughs> 
I know. Yeah, I think most people now have heard that I, I have a new startup called the Long-Term Stock Exchange, the LTSE, where our goal is to reform the public markets to create more incentives for long-term thinking for both managers and investors. So that's uh, taken up a lot of my time. And, uh, and we just released the Kickstarter book, The Leader's Guide. So, so the MVP of my next book is now in the wild, and people are starting to, to experiment and test with that. And so hoping to learn, learn a lot from that and, and work towards, towards building a new book. And, and the stuff we've been talking about today is really very much on my mind because I think we are on the brink of what I've been calling the kind of grand unified theory of entrepreneurship, which is I think we can adopt a management philosophy that shows that several currently seen as distinct business activities are actually the same. So if you look at somebody who's like building a new company from scratch in a garage, somebody who's building a new product in a radically new space in the context of an existing company, most people can kind of be like, okay, yeah, those are both entrepreneurs, right? Like that, you can see how they have some commonalities. But now we start to add someone like Ita who is trying to apply Lean Startup at an organizational level to do that kind of internal transformation of a company that's also a kind of entrepreneurship. And then you have someone who's trying to build a new IT system, a new HR, finance, probably internal process entrepreneur. That has a lot in common. And then don't even get me started on the corp dev side, people who buy startups for a living. All those activities are considered uh, distinct in most management systems today, but I think they're actually the same. And so having a common uh, corporate function that can manage across all those domains uh, is a huge improvement in the org chart of most companies. So I'm pretty excited about that. That's, that's pretty awesome. So we're um, out of time, but I just wanted to stop and thank both of you for your time. Thank you, Gita. Thank you, Eric. Thanks, everyone, thank for, for joining. This has been a really great conversation. Learned a lot about what you're doing and have some, some notes to take away to implement into my own lean startup practice. So I'm going to turn it over to uh, Felicia to take us out. Thanks to everyone for joining us today. This wraps up our show. Please join us again for next webcast in August. For San Francisco Bay Area folks, we're hosting our second Lean Startup Night community meetup on Thursday, July 28th in San Francisco. Check out our Twitter page for more details. We're at Lean Startup. We also wanted to share that summer sale for Lean Startup Week happening October 31st to November 5th ends on the 31st. So please visit leanstartup.co for more information.